to pray for one another and to pray for the work of the church as it goes out into the world. Let us have a brief prayer together that is interceding for one another. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this opportunity as your children. As you gather us, you give us the great opportunity and privilege to intercede for one another. And in that intercession, we are reminded that the Lord himself, who sits at the right hand of the Father, also intercedes for us. But also, O Lord, and gratefully so, also sends his Holy Spirit to dwell amongst us. And in that dwelling, intercedes also when we ourselves fail to do this great work. O Lord, thank you for the prayerful work that is done with and around us by your Spirit. And we now, O Lord, come as a people praying for one another. We pray, O Lord, for our own government that you've installed above us. We, O Lord, though we often struggle with them for their various decisions, know in your scripture that we are called to pray for them. And so, O Lord, we pray for Senator Duckworth and Durbin who represent us as we live in this state before the Senate. We pray, O Lord, that you'd give them wisdom as they rule over us, that the law that you've written upon their hearts would become more evident, O Lord, by the legislation that they themselves support. We pray, O Lord, that you'd minimize their influence when they fail to uphold your law. But we also pray, O Lord, that you'd be gracious to them and that you would reveal to them a greater sense of what is already written upon their hearts. May they not be people, O Lord, that suppress the truth of God, but, O Lord, may by their policy and what they advocate learn in growing obedience to what you've written in your scriptures. We pray, O Lord, that what they support, O Lord, would create prosperity not only within our own land, but also within our country as well. We pray also, O Lord, for those who are in missions abroad, we pray, O oh Lord, for Aaron Halbert and his ministry in Honduras and the planting of churches there and the difficult ministry that I know that he serves within. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be gracious to him and his family that as they seek, O oh Lord, to spread the gospel through the ordinary means of grace, that as churches are planted and as people are gathered, that not only would they hear with their ears, but they would receive in their hearts the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd give Aaron and his family wisdom in this endeavor. That they would hasten themselves. They'd be vigilant in the calling that you've called them to in Honduras. And that there would be an awakening within that land. And that you'd use, perhaps, his preaching. And the preaching of those like him to that very end. We pray also for the lost in our own community. We just prayed for the lost in Honduras as Aaron seeks to preach the gospel of Christ to the people of Honduras. Well, we pray, O oh Lord, for those who do not know you. In a season, O oh Lord, that is rampant with materialism, often celebrating various things, we often, O oh Lord, forget the originating reason for this season, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We pray, O oh Lord, for those in this season, perhaps attending churches once in a time that they have never gone, that as they hear the gospel, their hearts would be softened, and in that softening, they would receive the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, for opportunities within our own congregation, within our own families, to perhaps use this season to that glorious end, to drawing family members who do not know you into the church to hear the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he brought. We pray, O oh Lord, 
for those within our community. That there would be a spiritual awakening. We long, O Lord, to see your churches full. And we long that, O Lord, for your glory. Be with us, O Lord, as we seek to honor the Great Commission, even in our own lives, but also the life of this church. We pray, O Lord, that we would grow as a body as well. We thank you, O Lord, for the educational ministry that we receive here. We thank you for the teaching of of, uh, Mitchell Horsley for our adults and previously ruling elder Larry Rogers. We thank you, O Lord, for their service among us as elders of your church and as teachers of your church. We pray that our adults would continue to grow in a knowledge of the truth and that you would use the preaching of the word to that end, but also the teaching of the word. We pray for our various Sunday school teachers. We thank you, O Lord, for them. We pray that you use their ministry to your glory in rearing children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We pray that in this season you'd give all of our teachers rest and encouragement. That you'd share with them the hope of the gospel renewed. And that as you've given them this charge of caring for our children and youth, that it would be done to the great fruit of the gospel bearing forth. We pray also, Lord, for those who need our prayers. We think of Olivia Slocum. We pray that as she fell last week, though she is home this week, we pray that the doctors, as they care for her, that you would bring about quick resolve for any issues. Oh, Lord, be kind to Kristen and her family. Grant them rest and peace today. Though they are not with us, we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd remind them of the hope that we are couching them in our prayers and are caring for them even now. We pray that Olivia um, would be restored well in that regard. We pray, O Lord, for all of our families, though, as we enter into a transitional season of traveling to be with family. We pray, O Lord, that you'd grant all of us safe travels in that regard, that our times with our family would be a joyous occasion, a time of encouragement, of refreshment, Pray, O Lord, that this time would not be wasted, though. That we would be a people, O Lord, that even as we travel, would not lose focus of our purpose in living. And that is to enjoy you and to glorify you forever. O Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Our New Testament lesson that we'll be hearing today is from the Gospel of Luke. So I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke with me in chapter 7. Last week's sermon and this week's sermon have a commonality in that the Lord brings healing and restoration to the creation itself by his work. Last week we heard of the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ in healing the centurion's sick slave, the terminally sick slave. Jesus in his powerful might and word did not even have to meet the centurion, did not even need to touch the slave, and yet he was healed. Today we see perhaps an equally great miracle, even greater in many regards. Jesus need not be present for his miracles, but here today we see the raising of the dead. There are three times in the Gospel of Luke where we see this resurrection motif. Outside of the resurrection of Christ himself, we see it in the son of the widow of Nain, as we will read today. Jairus' daughter, and then you all know the story of Lazarus of Bethany. There are only three examples of it, and these are three examples that we need to slow down and think through thoroughly. Jesus Christ not only has the power to heal, 
but he has the power to stave off death itself by restoring those who are already dead. Stand with me then in reverence and awe as we hear from Luke chapter 7. We'll be picking up in verse 11 through verse 17. This is the word of God. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Here ends our gospel lesson, and this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A southern theologian, uh, Robert L. Dabney, was away on church business when he learned that his beloved son had come down with a serious illness. Like any anxious father, Dabney would rush. He would drop everything that he was doing in order to reach his son's bedside. Here's what Dabney recorded on the incident as he writes to his brother at his son's side. This is what he says. We used prompt measures and sent early for a doctor who did not think his case was dangerous, but he grew gradually worse until Sunday when his symptoms became alarming and he passed away after great suffering. Monday, a half day before he died, he sank into a sleep which became more and more quiet until he gently sighed his soul away. This is the first death we had in our family and my first experience of any great sorrow. I have learned rapidly in the school of anguish this week and am many years older than I was a few days ago. It was not so much that I could not give my darling up that I saw him suffering such pangs and then fell under the grasp of the cruel destroyer while I sat there impotent for his help. Ah, when the mighty wings of the angel of death nestle over your heart's treasure and his black shadow broods over your home, it shakes the heart with a shuddering terror and horror of great darkness to see my little one ravaged, crushed, and destroyed, turning his beautiful liquid eyes to me and his weeping eyes to his mother for help after his gentle voice could no longer be heard. And to feel myself as helpless to give any aid, this tears my heart asunder in anguish. Death is no compadre or friend to any human being. 
And as you hear the words of Dabney as he deals with the death of his own son, this great preacher in humility reckons with death for the first time in his household. Death seems perhaps natural to us, but as I've said before, it is probably the most unnatural thing that we all experience here today. We were not created to die, and yet we live in a world that sees death all so regularly. When Adam fell, we fell with him. And in that fall, the greatest impact upon all the creation was that death entered the world. Spiritual death where we experience hell forever, but also physical death. God in his grace deferred that latter judgment to a later time as he was gracious to Adam. But we experience the effects of that faithful day in Genesis chapter 3. We all know the anguish of death. We all feel this most poignantly with the death of a loved one. Perhaps you're reminding and recalling in your own mind's eye the first death you had experienced. Thought of my own grandmother's death, the first death I experienced as a high school boy. My grandma had nine lives, but in high school that ninth life ran out. And I remember anguishing as never before because I would never be able to talk to my grandmother again. Death is hard on every one of us. Few things cause more anguish than the death of a loved one. And what we see here in this passage today is just that. A sad experience, a sad situation as the Lord Jesus Christ himself travels 25 miles from Capernaum to Nain. And as he comes upon the city's gate, he sees a sad procession. Not a joyous procession as found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, but a sad one of people exiting the city with a lifeless man in their midst. It's a sad occasion that Jesus comes into contact himself. And he doesn't stay standing idly by. And that's the joyous hope. Though this sermon starts sadly, perhaps more sad than you can bear in such a glorious, joyful season, we see that joy, Jesus does not stand idly by. As a good American, you might stand idly by as a funeral procession goes down the street. You might be with right etiquette, pull over to the side of the road and let all the funeral process beside you. Jesus in some ways did that, but he did not stop at that because Jesus himself is the only one who could stop a procession, a procession such as this. So as we consider this text today, I know none of you are a friend of death. Neither am I. We all have varying experiences of death. Some of us have terror and horror as it relates to death. And what our hope today is to remove that terror and horror from you. Yes, death is unnatural, but in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see today, the terror around death, the horror of it is stripped away. We are reminded of that by the apostle Paul, when he says death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? My hope today is that as we hear this passage unfold before us, that the pain and misery of death would subside even as we sorrow together. So I want you to know, he who has Christ has life. He who has Christ has life. But though we have life, we must always remember in these first two verses that there is sorrow. 
That's the first thing we see in this passage is that there is sorrow. Soon afterward, in verse 11, he went down to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town, and behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was among her. There is sorrow here. In the ancient world, burial was quick. These weren't Egyptians who embalmed their dead. The body would decompose. You're reminded later in this passage, as Jesus is prepared for death, uh, uh, he was showered in ointment. Why? To mask the smell of death. When people died in ancient Israel, it was a quick affair. You planned quickly. You didn't plan conveniently for when family could get into town. You dropped everything and you buried your dead. The body rotted quickly and therefore they would bury this son quickly. Think of the shock and horror of burying quickly. This mother who had lost her husband, as we've already seen in the text, would quickly have to bury her son. The shock, the sting of death, still upon her own pricked soul as she grieves. But notice the image that we're given here of this experience. What was happening? It was a massive processional. To set the picture for you, there would have been a dirge playing with all sorts of instruments in the background. There would have been mourners that were hired professionally that would weep and wail loudly as they could to inform the whole community that something happened that changes the community forever. It would have been a momentous experience in the life of those who were there. Perhaps some of you are preparing your own funerals and you hope to have bagpipes so that all in the cemetery could hear that you are being lowered into the grave. It was a public experience. It would have had also family and friends. If you were coming into the town of Nain and you thought you had important business, you'd drop it and just join the procession. It was a societal event, a community event where community stopped in order to bury their death. There would have been great grief. The language here, as we look at this sad reality, is that Jesus says there, or the Luke says there was a considerable crowd that gathered. I think the community itself sensed the gravity of the situation that was going on for this poor woman. There's a considerable crowd. The Greek language there communicates that it was just the right size given the occasion. It was a great crowd. They gathered. Why would a great crowd, a sizable crowd gather? It is because of the sad reality here. Luke wants you to know that this woman, as she lost her son, lost more than her son. She had already lost her husband. Perhaps in our own world where we have social security, we have retirement accounts, life insurances, and pensions. They had none. And when this woman lost her son, she lost her livelihood. She had already lost her husband. Her care was now turned over to her son, her one and only son, who would be expected to care for his mother for the rest of his and her life. And now he is gone. What this would mean for this poor woman as she was tethered in many ways to this man is that her support would be gone as well. There would be no one left to defend her, no one left to care for her, no one left to fend for her. In, in many ways, when the moment that her son died, she died too. One commentator says, 
in this one sense, we might say that her life had ended that day, that her existence continued on. This was a sad occasion, a life-ruining event. And so a crowd gathers, though they think they can do nothing to help except mourn with her, as she will now be destitute. It was a painful day, probably a more painful day than most we would experience in death as her own life seems to end. Martin Luther wisely, when thinking about death, says this, when you hear of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin, but of the horrible manner of which life is separated from the body and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught. But you must think of the cause by which a man is brought to death and without which death and that which accompanies is it, which is impossible, namely sin, the wrath of God against him. We have talked about it, the sin that leads us to death. This man has tasted both that here today. It was a sad story. And many of us have our own sad stories. And so as we talk about the idea of death, perhaps on this what should be jovial occasion, I don't want to strip you from the sorrow that is included. It is right to be sorrowful for those who die. It is right to be sad. It is right to be sad with this family and the others who are sorrowful with them. Death is not normal, and so we are sorrowful. But the second thing I want you to see, which is probably the foundation of this passage, is that he who has Christ has life, that life comes in the form of comfort. So we see first, and as we've talked about, that there is sorrow. But second, we see that there is comfort. And we see this going from verse 13 to 15. Verse 13 says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke where Luke says, The Lord. We have seen in other places in Luke, don't get me wrong, where Jesus is given the, the moniker of Lord by others, but this is the first time Luke himself says, and the Lord saw her. And I think he does this very strategically because in the previous passages, we could say, yes, this is a great prophet that we have found in Israel. A great prophet could heal the sick. A great prophet could do this, that, and the other thing. This is the first example in Luke where we see this great prophet is more than a great prophet. He is the Lord himself. He is the one who has power and authority, not only in merely healing the sick, but raising the dead themselves. He has a creational authority. And so Luke gives him the right title of Lord, a title that would only be given in the Old Testament to the one true God of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It was a sacred title that Luke attributes to the Son of Man by calling him Curious. The Lord saw her, and he had compassion on her. You know, the Lord doesn't go to this funeral and say something cliché. He doesn't go and say he's in a better place and move on. He doesn't offer his condolences. In interesting fashion, this exalted Lord gives interesting advice. Do not weep. It's almost, perhaps, as you read those words, insensitive. 
It is, it is, of course, insensitive if Jesus has no power in this situation. If I said this to you at a funeral, you should slap me. I don't have any power to change the circumstance. But Jesus says this in light of what he's about to do. Jesus is saying to this dear woman, do not weep because I'm going to fix this. That's what he's saying to her. The idea of comfort here is the idea of grace and mercy that is wedded together. Luke wants you to know that Jesus brings grace and mercy to those who are sorrowful. What is grace and mercy? Ah, Brockel and his magnum opus, A Christian's Reasonable Service, he says this is mercy. It is the essential attribute whereby God is inclined to come to the aid of his creature in his misery. That is what Jesus is doing in this passage. He is coming to the creature in her misery as she is reckoning with the death of her son and the end of her own livelihood, Jesus comes in her misery to offer her mercy. But he offers her more than mercy in this passage. His compassion is also gracious. Sometimes as Christians, we confuse what mercy and grace are. We conflate them to being the same thing. But the grace of God is the Lord showing his unmerited favor. He shows his unmerited favor to this woman by doing what? By raising her dead son again. There's both mercy and grace. He shows pity upon those who are in their misery, but he also extends to them grace by showing favor to them even when they do not deserve it. I kind of think it in regards to my own children. When a child helps you with your dishes at the age of five or even younger, you show grace and mercy in those endeavors. You don't treat them as an adult, though. That's my general disposition towards my children, to have really high standards for them. Uh, but when our children do the dishes, they often do them imperfectly. And they often create such a mess, much more of a mess than perhaps I, that certainly my wife would create. And what do I do in those circumstances in order to show grace and mercy to my kids? I could lay down the law and say, you pitiful servant of the home, but I don't. What do I do? As a gracious father, a good father, perhaps, I say, well done. You, thank you. You've done well. Have they done perfectly well? No. But even greater than that, I might say, let's go to Bobby's and get some ice cream for your great service to our family. Same is true here. There's unmerited favor. Did this woman deserve to have Jesus interact with her at this occasion? No, but he was gracious to her, showed her favor even when she did not deserve it. In verse 14, we see the state of what he comes to rectify. Then he came and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. There are two acts in here that are gracious that the Lord does. You can all pick out the first one, or maybe it's the second one. And that is the Lord Jesus raises the son from the dead. But there is another act that happens that is just as gracious. Jesus Christ himself approaches the casket. He approaches the, the, the stretcher. He stops the funeral procession and touches the dead. This is unthinkable. Ceremonially, this would have made Jesus unclean. You're not allowed to touch the dead in this manner. He would be expelled from the temple for X amount of time until he'd be declared clean again. 
Jesus has no concern for that ceremonial law in this moment. He is not worried or concerned of what will be transferred to him ceremonially. He is worried and concerned of what he will do for this man. He's worried about what he will do, what he will give this man instead of what this man will give him. And so he approaches the coffin and he touches it. He reaches out. There's no small act for him to do so. Touching the dead gracious act. Jesus cares more about this man perhaps than most would. The prophets and the Pharisees of this time would have said, I don't want to touch. It is not below me to touch. I do not want to be unclean. But Jesus touches. And even more, Jesus then by his mere word revokes the curse of death upon this man. Young man, I say to you, arise. He revokes death by a mere word. When Jesus says, arise, he does not use the phrase in the similar way that we heard previously with the paralytic, where Jesus says, get up, arise, and take your stretcher and walk. The word arise here is a different meaning, and what it means is to give life back. Arise from the dead, arise from the grave, not to merely stand up, but to live. That is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, young man, I say to you, live. And by the word of his power, that man does live. But don't overlook that last phrase in verse 15. What does Jesus do after this man gets up and speaks as he does what Jesus commands? Jesus gave him to his mother. Why? Well, it gets back at the sorrow. This woman had lost her life. This miracle is as much for her son as it is for her. She, he gives this boy, this man, back to his wife to show her that he has restored her life as much as his life. That is the grace that we see in this gospel here. That is the comfort. The comfort isn't merely that the man is alive again, but that this woman has her life back. Her livelihood is restored. But what happened in that day in Nain would not be forever. You think that just because Jesus has called this man to rise again, does he live even today? The answer is no. He takes away the misery and sadness of death here, but we know that death will still come. It will come to this boy. This boy will age and he will die again, and his mother would too as well. And so the comfort here is to show every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus himself has authority to the very thing that you despair about and have horror with. The thing that keeps you up at night, those sleepless nights as you mourn the death of a loved one. The Lord himself has comforting authority over death itself. Yes, you will still sorrow, Yes, you will be sad. Yes, there will be misery. But that bite of death, that despair and horror in the Lord Jesus Christ is taken away. Every person in this room who believes in Jesus Christ is offered this exact gift. We live in a world that has two very different approaches towards death. In some ways, we see in our culture the romanticization of it. We romanticize death. In the other parts of our world, we try to forget death at all exists. 
I was thinking of as we were, I was reading the story of Dabney that I read a few moments ago. When have we experienced death like that? I've chosen by to be gracious to you. There was an even sadder story that I could have read of Benjamin Morgan Palmer, of his own dying daughter and then their own newborn daughter. I've decided not to make this even sadder of an occasion than it has to be today. But we don't experience death where we bury our own dead by our own hands. A couple hundred years ago, humans did. And it was a sad occasion. We try to sterilize death. Very rarely come into contact with it personally up front. But there is hope. There is hope. We need not neutralize the sting of death as it relates to sorrow and mercy by avoiding it at all costs. And we need not romanticize it. We may have hope that there is comfort, though, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see in this passage, we see, yes, there is sorrow, there is comfort. But the last thing I want you to see as it relates to death and the life that Jesus offers is that lastly, there is praise. Isn't that interesting? In a passage of sadness, we see it ends in praise. That when the Lord comforts his people, it leads to doxological praise. Verse 16 says, fear sees them all, a godly, holy fear. This man is powerful. They glorify God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And the report about them, him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. We see that at the end of this passage, it, it really wraps up in a kind way. The people, the crowd, they see what Jesus has done. You remember at the beginning of the sermon, it was a sizable crowd. Many of Jesus' miracles and healings happen in a small setting in the scriptures. We'll think of Jairus' daughter in a few weeks when we get to Luke 8, where he goes into the home privately, and no one ever even sees what Jesus does. Such a private and intimate occasion. Not so here. Here we see that Jesus raises the dead in a very public community. And in so doing, the whole town of Nain worships. It's not merely this woman and her son that worship the living Christ it is that whole community in town. They all are seized with fear. This man is more powerful than a human prophet. And they can conclude two things. A great prophet is among us today and that God has visited his people. This reminds me of John 1 as we've read it just a, earlier in the service as Larry read it for us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. These people have seen the glory of God that day in the work of Christ. And there is nothing that they can do but praise him. A great Christian apologist who wrote just one century after these events, uh, Quadratus, wrote to the great emperor Hadrain, and he said this, the person who was healed, the persons who were healed and those who were raised from the dead by Jesus were not only seen when they were healed and raised, but were always present also afterwards. And not merely during the time of our Savior who walked upon the earth, 
But after his departure also they were still there for a considerable time, so that some of them lived even until our own times today. An early Christian apologist sensing the great work of Christ on these such occasions. The town of Nain would be forever changed by this one experience. And it was because the comfort that Christ offers into the gospel removed the sting of death that they were all experiencing. And that removal of the sting and horror of death leads them rightly to praise, a public event for a public people to receive. And it is an event that we celebrate here even today. Perhaps not the most Christmas message, but maybe an Easter one. That the resurrection that the Lord Jesus Christ promises his people must lead us today as we look forward to it, to praise. We hear this praise as we gather every Sunday. I'd hope that our congregation can grow in this doxological praise as they look forward to the resurrection. But I don't want you to minimize what praise is either. It is tempting in our own modern world to think that what these people did here today, they only sang songs. We can minimize minimize praising by singing, but it is more than that. It was from these people's hearts, their declarations, their prayers, as they would hear the scriptures, as they would hear Jesus' sermon that most certainly was wedded with this, they would praise. And so think not that what you're doing even right now is sitting there, perhaps what seems to be passively, it is an event for praise for all of us. That we gather here today, not only for the numbers in our, uh, in our bulletin, but for the whole service itself to bring praise to God. Minister seeking to bring that to fruition by the preaching and the reading of the word. But it is all bound up in our praise and worship. When someone says, I like the worship of Providence Presbyterian Church, may it be not merely the music, but the whole service that is bound together in order to bring praise to the one who gives us life. He who has Christ has life. Though you are sorrowful, perhaps, as you think of the prospect of death, know that there is comfort that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are apart from Christ today, I have really bad news really bad news. And that bad news is that there is no life apart from Christ. The pain of death, the sting of it, still resides in your life. We're reminded in Romans 1 that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. For those apart from Christ today, fervently today more than perhaps most, I call upon you to consider these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You can defer death by either romanticizing it or trying to forget it altogether. But the clock is ticking. And rejection of Christ leads not to life, but to death. But for those who are in Christ, perhaps a majority, perhaps most who are in our congregation today, I want to leave with the words of Dabney once more. If Dabney starts on a very sad note, perhaps he can lift us up as we end the service today when he says these parting words. Our parting is not for long. The spoiled and ruined body will be raised and all the ravishes, all, all that it's ravished beauties more than shall now be repaired. Our little boy, 
we hope and trust, is a now ransomed spirit. This is the hope inaccessible and full of glory. As I stand by this little grave and think of the poor ruined clay within that was a few days ago, so beautiful, my heart bleeds. But as I ask, where is the soul whose beams gave that clay all its beauty and preciousness? Is in God, I triumph. Have it not already begun with this infant voice, the praises of my Savior? He is Christ's heavenly house now and forever, undering, under Jesus himself's guardian love. Now I feel, as never before, the blessedness of the redeeming grace and divine blood, which had ransomed my poor babe from all his sin and the death he inherited from me, myself. The great news of the gospel is that even the youngest babes among us that go to glory are nestled in the bosom of our Father. And though we are sorrowful today, they themselves declare glory and joy in the presence of our Savior. May you have comfort in that. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, even in the midst of perhaps the sadness when we think of death. We know there is resurrection. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we look forward to the resurrection today, even as we think of the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the incarnation, we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be gracious to us in that end. We pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.